I'm Reba Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. Okay, so I don't think I've gotten what I would consider too spicy on here yet. I don't know, you tell me. But I think this topic actually, this question of why we become therapists, I think this might be the spiciest topic that I've covered so far. And I think that might be kind of surprising to hear because at first glance, what's hard about this topic, why we become therapists compared to collective trauma and dysfunctional mental health workplace culture and moral injury and blah, blah, blah. And before I get into telling you why I think it's spicy, I will tell you a story I think illustrates why very well. So a few years ago, I was in a training that my friend you heard me speaking with in episode six, Kay Hickson, put on an ethics training called Power in the Therapeutic Relationship. And we are going to get to power later on in this episode. We very much are going to talk about power. But before we do that, I was in this training. It was barely pre-pandemic, right before the lockdown started. So it was an in-person training. So me and about, I'm going to say 25 or so other therapists in a conference room together. And we were having various lively discussions throughout the course of the training. And at some point, another therapist and Unfortunately, I forget the exact context in which this was said, but another therapist said something like, I just think that we as therapists are just people who are so unusually compassionate, so empathetic, and so giving. They were really hammering this, and I don't think they actually used the word selfless or altruistic, but that was heavily implied, I felt. And so I, and here comes another, a therapist can't say that moment, I said, I don't believe that at all. I don't think we're more inherently compassionate or giving people than anybody else. I think that we're people who took on caregiver roles in our families of origin and we learned to give in order to get and that we're ultimately just as selfish as anyone else. Something along those lines is what I said. You can imagine that that didn't go over well. I felt that sense of everybody just bristling and you know how therapists are. We have cultivated that ability to mute and tone down our expressions of our visceral emotional responses, especially in a professional setting, unless that professional setting is a therapist Facebook group, but in an in-person professional setting, you know, everybody kept it kind of buttoned down. But the cumulative impact of 25 people bristling even in a muted way, it's quite noticeable. So that's why I think this topic is spicy. It's alienating 25 other therapists who I probably in most ways was very aligned with in terms of values in a conference room with just a couple of sentences. Spicy. And that's what I'm imagining you all who are listening may be feeling. I'm really dating myself here in terms of memes, the memes I know, but there was this meme like seven years ago that some of you older millennials may remember that went like, I just came out to have a good time and I'm honestly feeling so attacked right now. So I'm imagining everyone who's listening right now is that meme. Because here's why I think my colleagues in that room bristled so viscerally that day. They felt insulted by what I had said. I had painted a very quick, unflattering portrait of not just them, myself too, but if somebody takes a really great picture of you and says, this is what you really look like. And then someone else takes an awful picture of you and says, this is what you really look like. I mean, 
come on, you'd rather believe the first person. And you don't really want to hear it from the second person or really look at the awful picture they took of you. I think that's how they saw it anyway. But just to extend the analogy a bit, I don't think that the picture of therapists as former parentified kids who learned that giving to others means getting our needs met and that we're not particularly better humans than everyone else is really such an awful picture. It's more like the difference between a picture that shows you as you are with your asymmetries and laugh lines and a picture that's been run through a bunch of Instagram filters. One is human and one is not. I don't know, maybe some of you all out there are saints or whatever the level just below saint is, just really, really excellent, better than average people. But I don't know. I don't know, you guys, because if therapists were really so much kinder and more giving and more compassionate than other people, would we really be out there getting into flame wars with each other on Twitter? Have you seen therapist Twitter lately? That shit is aggressive. The evidence does not support the assertion here. This is why I think grandiosity is a much bigger problem in our field than we like to admit. Because we think of grandiosity among therapists in terms of this really specific manifestation. You know, the type of therapist that Ben and Carrie brought up last time where someone thinks that they are God's gift to their clients and all the healing this client will ever need and so forth. I think if you ask someone to conjure up the image of a grandiose therapist, someone like that is who they would describe. But believing that we are especially extraordinarily compassionate, extraordinarily giving, unusually driven by pro-social motivations, that's a kind of grandiosity too. And I think it's probably a much more common form of grandiosity than the really obvious, loudly self-important kind of grandiosity. This can turn into a bit of a rabbit hole because I also don't want to imply here that I am better than these other therapists because I'm keeping it real and being honest about our less than altruistic motivations and that this therapist who saw themselves and the rest of us as these particularly altruistic beings is grandiose and I'm not. I'm very much not saying that. To give you an idea of the kind of grandiosity I have shown myself to be capable of, when I was in college back in the very early 2000s, my college boyfriend, who is now my very, very close friend and I, we were very political and we wanted to change the world. And one day we sat down to write some kind of manifesto or to-do list for remaking society. And the first action item we came up with was abolish hegemony. To our credit, we pretty quickly saw that was a ridiculous action item, but we did think that potentially we could be that important. Fucking 20-year-olds, right? But all that is to say, we're all susceptible to this. We all have the potential to wander into this territory where we are overestimating ourselves in some respect, even if we are also simultaneously underestimating ourselves in some respect. So don't exempt yourself from the possibility that you could be indulging in some kind of grandiosity somewhere just because you have imposter syndrome. They are not mutually exclusive. You know we contain multitudes, y'all. So why is this a problem? Why is this kind of grandiosity in our field a problem? It's easy to say it's a problem because, of course, grandiosity has a negative connotation inherently. But what about it? What about this kind of grandiosity is problematic for our field? For one thing, it automatically sets up an us and them, right? Us, the therapists, and everybody else. 
And we've talked quite a bit, I think so far, sprinkled here and there about the dangers of that, what happens when we create an us and them, how dehumanizing it is for us as therapists, and then how it can negatively impact points of potential connection between us and our clients. And this is a bit tricky, I think, a bit nuanced, because as I discussed in episode seven, we do have experiences by the nature of this work that are in many ways unique. And there are certainly personality traits that I would guess probably are more common among people who choose to work in this field. But if we are framing some of those patterns in terms like more giving, more compassionate, more empathetic, better, let's be honest, saying that we are more those things is saying that we're better on average than everyone else. And if you believe that, if some part of you believes that therapists are on some level better people than everyone else, and you think that's not impacting your relationship with your clients, I have bad news for you, my friend. Coming into session, carrying a belief that you are special because of how compassionate you are is no different in terms of its alienating impact on your client than coming into session believing you're the expert with all the answers. And I gotta say, I think a lot of people who would renounce the latter are pretty actively engaging in the former. So the other piece is that when we have an attachment to a grandiose belief. The problem isn't just that it's an inaccurate overinflation of our personal qualities. It's not just the piece that I just discussed where it's an implicit criticism or position of superiority over another person. It's that it also reflects an attachment to being seen in a certain way. And when we have an attachment to being seen in a certain way, including both seeing ourselves that way and having that reflected back to us by other people, we tend to want to reject information about ourselves that is inconsistent with that belief. So I said when I was talking to Ben and Carrie that it's important to me to be seen as smart. I believe that I'm smart. I have an attachment to that belief and I want other people to see me that way too. Uh, I've gone back and forth about whether this is a great example because I don't believe that my assessment of myself as smart is grandiose. I think it's accurate, obviously, because I believe it. But I wanted to use a personal example because I again, don't want to give the impression that I'm calling everyone else out and leaving myself out of the picture. So in any case, it's important to me to be seen as smart. So if I get some sort of feedback or information or have an experience that feels like it challenges that picture I have of myself as smart, I might be more likely to become defensive or dismissive or ashamed or all of those things and more. I might not be equipped to handle that kind of challenge to my self-concept as I would be if I were less attached to it, right? I'm saying all this as if it's hypothetical. It's not. This has absolutely happened to me. Let's go back to the example then, right, of a therapist being attached to a belief that they are an especially compassionate person, that seeing themselves as especially compassionate is particularly important to them. What happens when compassion doesn't come through for them? What happens when they encounter a really abrasive, whiny, sympathy-seeking client? That's something we don't talk about a lot, the clients who don't readily elicit our compassion, but it happens. What happens when this hypothetical therapist who cares so much about seeing themselves in this unflaggingly compassionate light gets piled on by moral injury and experiences compassion fatigue? What happens when that therapist has feelings of hostility or animosity toward a client? Are they going to be able to deal with that head on or is it going to get sublimated because it's incompatible with their self-concept or are they going to be consumed by a shame spiral? 
okay, I'm going to bring us back around to what I told you this episode was going to be about, why we became therapists. This is why this topic is spicy, because many of the reasons many of us became therapists are either not consistent with our own self-concept, not consistent with how we want others to see us, or both. It's not the Instagram filter version where everyone looks two-dimensional and 20 years old. I wanted to help people and I just wanted to help people so bad that I went into this extremely weird and ambiguous field where I'm constantly questioning how much I'm really helping people. No, this is the unfiltered, complicated human stuff. And we have to reckon with it because whether we reckon with it or not, whether we acknowledge it and own it or not, or we stuff it away, it's there. It's there in the room with us and our clients. So I'm just going to toss off a few reasons why I think I became a therapist. Besides to help people, or even as Ben alluded to in our interview, besides the feeling, the good feeling I get from helping people. First, I am incredibly nosy, always have been. I remember in elementary school, there was a time that I was always asking the other kids about their personal business that I'd caught wind of until I figured out that asking directly was very often the worst way to find out the dirty details of someone's life and got a bit more subtle. And you guys, if you want to know the dirty details, the drama, the intrigue, the messy stuff about people, this job is great. I remember when I was in my internship. I was working at a domestic violence shelter, and it was in so many ways, very heavy work, as you can imagine. So much trauma, so much upheaval, really serious shit that the shelter residents were going through and that I was carrying with them. But also, my clients were all part of this big group of people who were suddenly living together out of no desire to do so, but because they were leaving various traumatic situations. So we're talking about a lot of people who have no compatibility as roommates living together and sharing a kitchen and having to deal with each other's kids and parenting and everything you can imagine and maybe don't have to imagine because have you seen reality TV? It was honestly a lot like that. So sometimes I would have one client come in and tell me about some drama that went down with another resident in the kitchen that morning, and then that resident would be my very next client, coming in to vent about that exact same interaction. This, my dear oh-so-compassionate therapist friends, was a busybody's dream. I got to know all the business. And let me tell you, it was nice to have something like that to lighten up that heavy, heavy work. Private practice is very different, of course, but I'm still me and I'm still nosy and I'm sure dozens of questions a week float through my mind in session that would only serve the purpose of fulfilling my boundless curiosity about the sordid details of absolutely everyone's lives. And mostly I don't ask them, except in those cases where it's appropriate to that particular client relationship. But I think little nosy baby Riva would be pretty fucking stoked to find out she grows up to get to know so much about what people are really up to and what they're thinking and doing. So I don't know how many of you are like me in that way. Maybe there are a bunch of nosy Nellies out there, maybe not. But this next reason is one I think is very common. I mean, maybe even close to universal among therapists. And it's the desire to have people make sense. That's the whole point of psychology, right? To make sense of people in a very intimate, personal and detailed way. And I think having a strong desire to make sense of people is really a neutral trait. It's not necessarily a pro-social thing. It's not necessarily an antisocial thing. It can be both and neither. 
It may seem a little obvious, you know, therapists have an interest in people, not a huge epiphany there. But the reason I think it's important to name it explicitly and to name it in this particular way, a desire to have people make sense, is because I believe that is one of the biggest drivers of what has historically been the primary therapeutic intervention, interpretation. Interpretation being, of course, the explanations that we give to clients to try to explain their experiences in light of whatever conceptual model we happen to be using to try and provoke new insights for the client. So I know that in the discourse, in the way we talk about therapy these days, interpretation is not considered a very popular intervention. You know, everybody is the expert on their own experience, and we want to allow clients to reach their own conclusions and not try to persuade them of ours, and insight is not enough to create change, and all those critiques you hear. Sure. But we all do it. And even non-insight-oriented therapeutic modalities do very much require some interpretation, because to get the client on board with your form of therapy, you have to do some explanation of why and how your form of therapy is going to work for their problem. My impression from talking to a lot of therapists and clinical supervisors is that most of us lean a little more heavily on interpretation than we would like to admit. Because it's exciting, right, to find a new puzzle piece. To have our picture of this person in front of us or even people in general suddenly get a little more clear. And I love that feeling. I think a lot of you probably love that feeling. And then there are a couple of potential clinical pitfalls there. One is the experience I'm guessing almost everyone has had at one point or another, where you offer the client an interpretation and expect that they are going to join you in the satisfaction of your epiphany, and it just doesn't land. For whatever reason, it's just not a point of connection with that client. And in our eagerness to share what is to us an important and fulfilling experience of sense-making, we end up in a moment of misattunement with the client. Another pitfall, I think, is that the desire to have people make sense can cause us to get overly attached to our interpretations. And this can get pretty thorny because I'm not saying that, say, if a client doesn't agree with an interpretation you make of why they are the way they are, that they are necessarily right and you're necessarily wrong. I pretty emphatically believe that people are often wrong about themselves and that sometimes the people we encounter, not even necessarily only the people who know us well, see things about us that we are unable to see about ourselves. So this part isn't really about the client's opinion exactly. It's more about that sense of an overly strong attachment to our interpretation, shutting down that space of possibility that comes with the unknown. It puts us in that position of excessive certainty. And I think that so much of the acrimony among therapists comes from that drive to have it all make sense, to be certain that we have figured it out according to our model or theory or integrated lens or however you think of it. Because if we think that we've made sense of people, that we are resting in some kind of certainty about that, it becomes very easy to see ourselves as right and other therapists as wrong, and we arrive at that place where another perspective, another approach becomes a threat. We're getting into some deep stuff here because where does that drive to understand to make sense of people come from? And we are also getting meta because this is my interpretation. But my sense is that it, at least in part, It can come from some of the early relationship experiences that therapists tend to have in common, where figuring someone out was a very important adaptive strategy. 
And we all know how potent that early stuff can be. So I think that has to account for some of the tension and animosity that can come up between therapists, that lack of tolerance for diverse viewpoints, different approaches, different opinions about the work, for vigorous disagreement without self-righteousness and disposability. We get attached to our certainty, to our particular way of putting the puzzle pieces together because it gives our child selves a sense of psychological and relational stability that, frankly, I think the vast majority of us did not grow up with. So to arrive at that comfort of certainty as an adult, and then to willingly and consciously decide to give some of it up again to allow for other possibilities, can be a very challenging choice that requires some real courage. I said back at the beginning of this episode that we are going to talk about power. And we are arriving there now at what I think is one of the topics that therapists are the most deeply uncomfortable with. It's so central and it's the subject of so much avoidance and evasion, perhaps because of some of the history of the field, perhaps because so many of the people in this field are women and women are socialized to be uncomfortable with embodying our own power. And maybe some of the both fair and unfair stereotypes about therapists and the very real power differentials that can exist between therapist and client. I think most therapists are so scared of being seen as abusing their power that they're ironically afraid of doing the work around their relationship with power that would benefit their clients the most. I think there are kind of two possibilities when it comes to the stance towards personal power that therapists come into this field with. One possibility is that someone is attracted to this field in part because being a therapist is a position of power and they actively like that. They are somebody who enjoys having power. That can be, and I think often is, a reason that people become therapists. The other possibility is that someone has a neutral or uncomfortable response to the idea of inhabiting a position of power, but they are still attracted to the field for other reasons. The thing I want to get clear about is that neither one of these possibilities is better. There is nothing inherently wrong with being somebody who likes having power, and there are plenty of potential downsides to being a person with power who doesn't want it. If somebody is in that position where they have power that they don't want, but they continue to inhabit this powerful role, it can become too easy, almost reflexive, to deny that power or refuse to use it in a constructive way, to avoid directly wrestling with the aspects of a relationship that are impacted by a power differential. And I think a lot of therapists, the trend now is to downplay or try to simply reduce the power differential as much as possible, rather than to explore how we use that power differential productively in the service of our clients. Whichever of these two camps you fall into, whether you like having power or you'd rather not, but you're stuck with it to some degree in this job, I think it's important to learn to get comfortable with the reality that we are in a role of outsized power and influence in people's lives. That's okay. We want to influence our clients. That's the whole point. That's what we talk about when we talk about outcomes. We are talking about the influence we have on people's lives. And you can distance yourself from it by talking about it as the outcome of the process or the modality or the client's own engagement. But we are our own instruments in this work. And as such, we are influential. Fundamentally, the reason it's so important to be honest with ourselves and examine the things that propelled us towards this work is that almost all of those reasons are neutral. Even the most simple wanting to help people can be a complex double-edged sword. What I said earlier about being nosy, 
Nosiness has a negative connotation, but it can also mean being thorough, being curious, and getting down into important details when you're on a fact-finding mission about someone. Wanting people to make sense? That can help us create order from chaos, help people restore a coherent narrative to their life experiences, or it can result in us getting overly attached to interpretations that don't accurately reflect the complexity of truth. Being attracted to positions of power and influence? Sure, we all have stories of people using their power and influence in harmful ways, but it can also lead us to roles where we can step with strength into a place of leadership from which we can guide people into an experience of their own empowerment and into making their own lives better. I want to end with going back to something Carrie Weta said in our interview last episode. The inevitability of making a mistake is really what I think Ben and I have learned from from all these stories. There's no way to stop yourself from doing bad therapy at some point, no matter how you're approaching the work. The only tool we have truly is humility to avoid the defensiveness that ends up being like at the core of almost all these bad therapy experiences. It's a safe bet if you enter into the therapy room trying to hold a sense of humility. I think that that is where you're going to avoid harm the most. Humility. And just as humility is not compatible with grandiosity and overvaluing ourselves, it's also not compatible with undervaluing ourselves or downplaying what it is that we're bringing to the table. True humility to me means getting to know our own complex humanity to the greatest degree possible and understanding that there are always going to be more things we don't know. And to show up with humility as a therapist means showing up to our role in this work not as two-dimensional, dyed-in-the-wool helpers, but as full human beings who are learning to make peace with all the messy and sometimes unflattering reasons why we ended up here in the first place. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and follow A Therapist Can't Say That wherever you listen to podcasts. And it would be especially helpful if you would share the show with a therapist friend who you know would appreciate what we're doing here. You can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. If you'd like to share anything with me that these episodes have brought up for you, or if you want to tell me about your A Therapist Can't Say That moment, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time. Bye.